Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Frank Spencer. Frank is a published author and speaker and delivers presentations and workshops around the globe. He holds a Master's of Arts in Strategic Foresight from Regent University. Frank has worked on foresight for companies like Kraft, Mars and Marriott. He's also led the effort to establish foresight as a leadership competency across the Walt Disney Company, training over 300 people across the globe. Importantly, Frank is also the co-founder of The Future School, a global foresight learning platform. He's also the founding partner at Kedge, a foresight innovation, creativity and strategic design firm. Welcome to FuturePod, Frank. Thank you, Peter. It's so much uh, my pleasure to be with you right now. And I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Um, We were talking earlier that you and I saw each other face to face. And I think last talked probably around 2007 or somewhere in the vicinity of that. So it's been a long time. It's been too long and I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thanks, Frank. I feel the same. So Frank, question one, the Frank Spencer story. So How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? That is a great and fantastic question. And people ask me all the time, how did you get into this field? And I have to stop and think about the situation I'm in. And I say, do I give them answer one or do I give them answer number two? And I have to feel out which one they'll be able to handle. Yeah. And the reason I say that, and I'll go ahead and tell your listeners is because if I don't think they can handle the, the deeper answer, I just say, oh, you know, I really felt like this was always a part of my psyche. And when I finally did find the field, it really just spoke to me and resonated with me. And this was sort of something that was always sort of in my, a part of who I was, I really think. But the deeper answer is I actually was a Christian pastor for a long time, for about 12 years. But I never, I've always been a contrarian by nature. (laughs) Even as a pastor, I felt like, you know, we're not really supposed to be approaching this from just telling people, you know, our congregants and the people that go to your church or whatever to to get ready to go to heaven. We need to be making this a better world. And um, I always felt that way. Through time, I found out that, you know, there was gatherings of religious and Christian or pastoral futurists. And I was like, what is that? That sounds like me. <laughs> and then as time went on, you know, I really found like this is what this is really what I should be doing. This is spirituality for me, really, is really thinking about how to create a better future for for people. So, you know, the transition has continued to happen and I'm in a different place than I was back then. But it's really still part and parcel of always how I felt that we collectively, individually as well, of course, but collectively should be working together to create a better future for everyone. I have a cute story that when I was in grade school many, many years ago, I don't want to say how old I am now. My mother used to, my mother and father used to let me um, use the garage. We actually moved in this beautiful old house in Savannah, Georgia, when I was in grade school. And the garage out back was not like you might picture a garage today, but it was a very old, this house was built in the 1920s and the garage still looked like it was from the 1920s. So my friends and I went in there and rehabbed the inside of the garage to be 
a film studio or what we thought was a film studio back in uh, back in the day. And we had super eight cameras. Of course, there were no like you have today. And we had a, we were big fans of all of the sci-fi movies back in the day, the day the earth stood still and the early Star Wars films. And and so we recreated all that in my garage and we filmed all these sci-fi films on Super 8. And I knew from an early age that this whole idea of the future, science fiction, but all of that, all the way that those kinds of genres speak to the future as well. I thought I was going to grow up doing this. And I did in many ways. And so it's really always been a part of, of, of my story. And then there was a, what, a formal segue into the actual getting a, a foundational education in this space. It was. And so when I was in, when I went to college, I studied uh, sociology and, and, and psychology. And then uh, once I graduated, I was going to go off to seminary and, uh, and then I ended up pastoring. And, but then once I got to that part of the story where I found there is a field, there is a, there's an actual discipline of futures, and this resonates with me so much, then it was just about that time that um, Dr. Jay Gary my mentor and good friend for many, many years now, was beginning the master's program at Regent University. And so, of course, there was a lot of great choices for me. Um, I could have done like my good friend Tanya Schindler and flown over to Australia and been with you, or I could have uh, been at the University of Houston or Hawaii, but Jay and I really hit it off and clicked. And I was basically his first student at Regent. Um, Of course, during the time I was there, I went through sort of slowly through my master's degree program. So I took about three years to do it because I was working and other things were going on. But and that was good for me because, of course, as I'm sure you've taught your students, it's not less necessarily about the courses. Those are important, but it definitely is more about the learnings and the connections and the networking that's so important. And so I was glad to be able to take my time and go through that and not only be able to meet people like Jay and be mentored by him, but then to meet you and so many people at the World Future Society, the Association of Professional Futurists. And all of that took place from around 2004 to 2007, 2008. Um, as I said, I was, you know, in the futures field a good decade before that, mm. just without the credentialing behind my name. Yep. Actually went and did a little bit of work um, in 2007 for uh, social technologies, of course, Andy Hines. And, and so that was sort of my early story, my segue into the formal part of the field. Can you maybe talk just a bit about the kind of establishment of the future school and, and of course, Kedge in terms of how they have kind of, you know, continued, but also evolved your craft? Absolutely. And, you know, it's really funny, too, how Kedge, um, the, the, our mothership, I say, came into being. As a matter of fact, just this past August, Kedge has celebrated its 10-year anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and um, during that time, it's just been, it's been wonderful. Maybe the, I would say the first 12 months weren't necessarily wonderful. Because <laughs> first of all, anybody that tries to start their own business is insane. Yeah. You know, you, it sounds great. It is great if it gets going, but it's, it's, that's a hard road to hope. Yeah. If you do your math and you think, oh, so it's 10 years old, 2009. Oh, wow. You started this right during the you know, 2008. <laughs> <laughs> during the financial crash worldwide. So what a perfect time to start your own business is when you're in the Great Recession, right? But it wasn't long after that. Um, I ended up you know, Kedge started to do some work with clients. And of course, as I said, I worked with social technologies for a while and decided that uh, for various reasons that I was going to launch Kedge and launch my own firm. And there's so many great people doing work out there already. And Mm. 
but the, you know, I had my reasons why, and it was hard going at first, but then as time went on, things started to pick up. And in 2011, I started doing work for the Walt Disney Company. Yep. As a matter of fact, my main contact at the Walt Disney Company was Disney's Futurist at the time, Yvette Montero Salvatico. Ah, all right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, per, perfect, right? And uh, so I did work for her. And um, we, she was already launching the workforce of the future in parks and resorts. And, but she decided in the process that as corporations often do, they'll you know, say, well, yeah. that, this part of your <laughs> life is over. Whether you like it or not, we're moving you to another part of the company. <laughs> and she decided, no, I'm a futurist. I don't want to be moved around. So I say I cherry picked her out, but I'm so blessed wow. and honored to have her as a partner today. We ended up doing more work for the Walt Disney Company after she left than we did while she was there. As many people already know, we did a huge piece of work for the Walt Disney Company that about four years into the work, Bob Iger, who was the chairman at the time just recently, has, has retired. Still there on the board, but recently retired. Promoted strategic foresight to be one of the top three leadership competencies at the Walt Disney Company. And so we did that work for about five years, especially in Walt Disney International. And a lot of people don't realize that Walt Disney International, uh, Disney has locations in 45 countries around the world. People would say, oh, really? Like you taught in Moscow? I don't remember there being a Disneyland in Moscow, but it's not only where the parks are. Of course, Disney has stores and you know merchandise and television and movies and all of those kinds of things. And so 45 different countries, we formed a futures team that we united globally. I think to date probably is still one of the largest organizational competencies. And we actually wrote about it in a textbook that was released, I think, two years ago called Futures Thinking and Organizational Policy. And uh, we have a chapter in there about Disney's workforce of the future and how we did all of that work over a four-year period. What an awesome experience. It really was. And the platform? So the Futures School actually was born out of the work that we did at Disney. And of course, for other companies, it too, Hasbro, Lego. Um, you mentioned some of the ones, you know, like Mars and Marriott, but many, many companies, Daimler and Ford. And so that looks great on your resume. And uh, but when you go to a conference to speak and you've got all of these people sitting in the audience who work for small to medium sized businesses, social initiatives, which we care about greatly. And I talk about some of the, that work as well, if time permits. But they'll sit in the audience and come to you afterwards and say, well, great, the Walt Disney Company <laughs> created a big futures team across 45 countries. But I work for a small business. We don't have the funding. I don't even have a champion. We, I, I don't have anybody in my company saying do this, but I feel so drawn to what you just said. What do I do now? And so we said, you know, doing work for companies is great. We love it. As a matter of fact, I have a real passion still to work inside of these organizations because as much as organizations need to change and our structures need to change and we see a lot of corruption in corporate life, those people inside those organizations largely still want to change the world. A lot of them do. And we find amazing people inside these companies saying like, please, we want to do this work because we really want to, you know, really change the world. So it's an interesting dichotomy working inside of that, inside of the corporate world and still really wanting to be a world changer. But we were able to create the Futures School, which now has grown into be a learning platform. At the time, it was just our three-day accelerator, our flagship program, which still exists, happens two times in the U.S. every year and at least once outside of the U.S. every year, grown now to be you know four or five times a year around the world. 
But we said we're not democratizing the future fast enough. We're not really getting the future in the hands of the people that really need it. And so we created the Future School so that we could bring together artists and, yes, these executives and strategists, but innovators and social entrepreneurs and, and students all together in the room at the same time. And we only seat 30 every, every time we have the Future School. And um, it's a three-day, intensive, project-based, hands-on, messy, immersive training program that has just exploded, become this wonderful thing where people leave after three days. And this may sound cheesy or corny or kitschy, but I've seen so many people cry when they leave this program. Mm. And I didn't mean for that to happen. I hope they're not crying because they (laughs) hated the program. Um, But they will come to me and cry and say, my life has been changed. And I was like, what happened? What What did we make? And it's really not me. And it's not that. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the power of this field and the power of really getting this in the hands of people and giving them agency. Yes, it's it's what it liberates was that was always inside of people that is the most exciting part of this work. Powerful. Question two, Frank. The one where I encourage the guest to, if I say teach, educate, inform the listeners about a method or framework or an approach that is central to their practice. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? You know, I spoke briefly about this idea of democratizing the future. And you and I actually got a chance to speak briefly about underserved communities, you know, what we might say in the United States, at-risk communities or, you know, the forgotten. And it's so easy to think about the future being in Silicon Valley, where technology is, or the future being something that we can easily see, you know, what we might call the privileged or those, you know, who don't have to go through this daily struggle with racism and xenophobia and financial crisis on a daily basis and a lack of education and on and on and on. Those are the people that we need to have the voice of the future. We need them to be have that agency and be empowered. As a matter of fact, I'm just thinking now about a gentleman who came to the Future School um, Accelerator Program in Portland in October the last time that we ever did a live program. And now it looks like there might not be another face-to-face live program for a while. Mm. But he came, one of the world's um, most honored and decorated, not hip hop, but um, beat artists, the, you know, the, the ones who, um, who actually go out there and do the, uh, the poetry, slam poetry, that kind of thing. Amazing gentleman. And he came and he said, look, I just found out about this field of foresight. I don't really know anything about it. But I want to be able to not just teach youth how to do my craft, but I want to be able to take back methods and ability, but and a mindset to these kids that the future belongs to them too. It was one of my favorite experiences in Portland, favorite, you know, people that came to Portland. They were all wonderful who came, but that just stood out to me so much. And so this idea of democratizing the future is so central to us. It's a cornerstone of everything we do. You know, we work with big companies, but I'm in there really to change the lives of those people. As a matter of fact, Peter, I could tell you something really funny. It's, and we joke about this at Kedge all the time. The entire team jokes about this. I cannot tell you how many people have come to us only months 
after we've done an engagement with a Disney or a Hasbro or a, a Ford, and they'll call us and say, um, I'm quitting my job. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 that wasn't was supposed to be what you were supposed to do. That wasn't what I came to do. You know, there's no stopping them at that point um, because they get where they feel that they're trapped. This has happened more times than I could possibly count. Um, it's a part of that democratizing the future. I'm not saying that everybody that we ever teach would quit their job. I hope they don't. I want them to stay and change the world that they're in in many ways. But at the same time, I don't blame them because they've maybe found agency for the first time in their life. They found out for the first time in forever that they're allowed to think this way, um, that they've been in a job for so long that told them that this is the one linear way to think. And now they've realized that they can dance with complexity and and so I just want to also briefly say that it's not just about democratizing the future because I believe democratizing the future and democratizing foresight are two different things. The first is to really get the idea of that agency and the ability to think in, in multiples and to own the future and to have a shared voice in the future and a network around the future. That's democratizing the future, getting it to the hands of everybody. We always say, if everybody thought this way, the world would be a better place. Not just because we can make you know, ideas about what the future might be or we'll make multiple scenarios. It's about that agency again, what foresight is really used for. But then democratizing foresight is important too. And thank goodness for people like you who have spent so long just doing this important work and, and, and every accolade that you get, you deserve because you have taught people how to take methods and ideas and ways of thinking and tools and all that good stuff and really apply it so that we have a real way to make this tangible and practical and bring the future back into today. And so we need to not only democratize this, the mindset of the future, which is so important, but also the ability to tackle it and uh, these tools and these methods and and yes, the mindsets as well. And so I think both of those are so important. We also spoke just before we started where you wanted to introduce this notion of really our ability to embrace and work with complexity. I'd like you also to sort of, to me, that's the third part of the process. Yes, we need, we need people with agency. Yes, we need the tools and everything out there in people. But the one that we're still grappling with is this notion of how do we engage with a very, very complex world and increasingly complex world. Thank you so much for that, Peter, because you couldn't be more right. And uh, that's the great segue. So really at the heart of all of that is I'm a, just a big complexity geek. If a book talks about complexity, the author studied complexity or the title has something about complexity <laughs> in it, I'm going to buy it. There goes my money right out the door. I don't have a degree in complexity and I didn't study complexity in school, but boy, if I haven't spent the hours afterwards, I feel like I almost deserve one. I don't, but I feel like I do. So yes, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, many people have written about complexity in the past as if it's this, especially from a pop angle, as if it's this really big, bad monster. Yeah. And certainly we do live in this world that's increasingly complex, but I think we need to ask ourselves, is that on purpose. In other words, is that sort of a feature of maturity? And is complexity and complication really the same thing? Or complexity and chaos really the same thing? 
Because really, when we look at microsystems and we look at macrosystems, we look out in the universe and we look at how people grow, they don't move to a state of greater simplicity. Things move to a greater a state of greater complexity. And so, of course, there's a lot more to say about that. And, you know, yes, you're right. We live in a complex world. And how do we tackle that? But a lot of the problem is, is that we're trying to approach these increasingly complex landscapes and, and uh, environments from an old mindset. And we're trying to apply rules from a previous hour or age or, or epoch um, to these new landscapes that we're in. As a matter of fact, I think this is going to be a great segue to really talking about this brand new landscape that we're in, you know, this global pandemic. So how do we really look at complexity, not as the enemy or as, you know, you'll read in Harvard Business Review or Strategy Inc. every month, there's always got to be at least one article about stomping you know, crushing, killing, or simplifying yeah. complexity in some way. And how do you simplify complexity? It's like trying to shove the genie back in the bottle. <laughs> and it's interesting that they, you know, often complexity is portrayed as an external factor. That's right. And of course, there is no more complex thing than a human being. And the way to make a human being very complex is to bring together three or four of them and ask them to work yes. together. <laughs> You have a potential for complexity in people. Again, you'll never match external complexity, right. but we have our inherent complexity, and that to me is what foresight is about, is actually about teaching people or showing people how to harness their own and create their own complexity of learning, complexity of thinking together. I, you and I could talk for hours and hours and hours on this, and I would be a happy, happy person. Because you said it more eloquently than I probably ever could. When we think of, you know, just the theory of, of course, we have complex adaptive systems. And we know that the larger planetary system regenerative processes, our ecology is built on complexity or vice versa, right? Uh, when we put these people together, we have complex responsive processes that are emergent. Emergence is a property of complexity, right? When we think about just, uh, you know, being a trend hunter and really thinking that that's what foresight's about, just these trends that you can lay out in front of you like a deck of cards. And we miss the fact that there's these complex potential states um, that are hovering around, beside, up, down, and behind. And that's what complexity is really about, is really being able to dance with this complexity. That's what foresight's really about, is dancing with complexity. And so I love this phrase, creative complexity. Because when we do what you just said, Peter, when we teach people how to live with their complexity, how to emerge with their complexity, then what we're really doing is we're giving them a big piece of canvas to paint on. And instead of just thinking about the world as being wicked problems, wicked problems, wicked problems, complex problems, how about we flip that on its head? And we say the solution to those come through that dance with complexity where we create these complex opportunities or wicked opportunities, so to speak. And so that is, you're so right. How do we democratize the future? How do we democratize foresight? And that third element is really understanding that complexity and foresight are really one and the same, that this is what foresight is really all about, is we're creating a new vision for the world. Our new story, our new narrative really has to at least uh, recessively, if not dominantly, be about a new relationship with complexity. And that is what drives what we do at Kedge and what we do at the Future School and how we teach foresight. And I know it's how you do as well. Thanks, Frank.
Question three, the one I I actually enjoy this and most of my guests don't, so I'm probably not a very nice person, Frank, which is I ask you to take the expert badge off and just how does Frank Spencer make sense of the emerging futures around him? Uh, how do you see the futures emerging you can you can put it in whatever time frame you want yours you know you know your family's generations whatever but how do you navigate the complexity of our emerging futures it's interesting that you talked about generations because there is a four on the end of my name i'm the fourth frank spencer the fourth okay and i just got i have to say for your listeners because i know that you have a global audience you definitely have an Australian audience, so your audience is going to appreciate that I am aware that Frank Spencer is a character in a long-running English, a British sitcom. Oh yeah, called Mothers Do Add Them. <laughs> yep. Every time I would always go and teach a, a, a workshop or, or work with a company in London or, or anywhere in Europe, for that matter, really, they would giggle a little bit at first um, <laughs> as if I didn't know. And then if they had to make me a badge to get inside the building or whatever, they would never put Frank Spencer. They'd always put my middle name or just the fourth on there or something. So <laughs> it's really funny. But yes, my my great-grandfather was Frank Wilson Spencer, and my great my grandfather was Frank Wilson Spencer, and my father was Frank Wilson Spencer, and I'm the last one. I have two boys. Neither one turned out to be Frank. My <laughs> wife would not allow it. I come from this history. I like, I'm, I'm a history buff as well. And as you might imagine, and my great-grandfather actually was uh, the first uh, harbor master on the Savannah River. He opened the Savannah River when he was 17 years old with a 98-year Civil War general. Wow. And the two of them got in a rowboat and they rowed up the river to, and took depth readings with a, you know, simple equipment, a 17-year-old and a 98-year-old man. At a very early age, he, he graduated from um, the Naval Academy in New York City, which doesn't exist anymore, went defunct way back in the day. This is back in the late 1800s, ended up becoming his harbor master. So the sea and uh, all of that history that goes around it, um, the SS Savannah, which was one of the first to cross the Atlantic from Britain to, to the, the New World in America. He actually had a part of that as well. So um, that's actually where the name Kedge comes from in many ways, because as your listeners may well know, a Kedge is a smaller anchor on a sailing vessel that when there was no wind at sea and they go stir crazy, if they couldn't move, they would take that smaller anchor, that Kedge, and they would put it in a rowboat and they would send it out in the direction they wanted to go tied to a long rope. Those who were left on the boat would pull and pull and pull themselves in the direction they wanted to go when there was no wind. Even if there was no one, they could pull themselves forward. And the reason I tell that story is because it's really a, it's a part and parcel of who I am. So you're right. Take off the, the I still was there for a second, but take off the hat, take off the, the futurist and just get back to Frank. It's still a part of who I am. It's really believing that we can, as humans, transform our path forward. When I talked about complexity a few minutes ago, it's tied up for me in an evolutionary response. Um, Because the truth of the matter is complexity breeds emergence. And so we don't talk about this a lot. We talk about trend hunting and such, but really what we're trying to do as futurists is get people to flow with emergence. We're trying to get them to flow with what wants to emerge, what wants to transform. Now, of course, right now we're in this global pandemic. What's trying to transform out of that? What's trying to emerge from that? Mm. 
And you said before we started our call that, you know, a lot of smart people have said, we need to sit with this for a moment. I agree with that because I think it's time for us to see what's trying to emerge. A lot of people have been doing a lot of hard, a lot of hard work for transformation before this began. I'm one of those kind of people that even if I didn't know about features, I'd want to be, I'd want to have my hands dirty and trying to make a difference and make a change for people and the future really being about people and how we interact with our planet and a part of the larger ecosystem. That's just who I am, whether I'm in this field or not. And so I love this idea of still sitting with this because we need to see what is trying to emerge. What is, what is it beckoning us to see and evolve with so that we can flow with that instead of trying to like fight it so much, which got us into a lot of the predicament we're in right now. Mm. Try to keep these systems alive that, have been dead for a long time already yeah. and letting go of them and, and flowing with the emergence that's trying to come about. And so that's one of the things definitely through this pandemic, but just in general, that as I still believe that as humans, we can grow up and we can flow with that emergence that wants to come forth, that wants to transform and come forth. And I look forward to us collectively really, you know, seeing how we can do that together collaboratively, cooperatively, and and make that happen. Futures or not, this is, you know, the ultimate goal is really to think of, you know, what are these new systems to cause humanity to grow up and mature? Yeah. We are taught, that, and I think we accept, that the future is a contest of ideas. Mm. And the future of what wishes to emerge is in competition with, with notions that, it, that, if you like, held dominance beforehand. I mean, what are some of the the competitions for the future that you're sort of you know, sensing right now? I love that you said that because, of course, you know, like everybody else in the field, we, you know, love to point to not just, um, you know, ideas, but even methods in the field. We often joke, if there's any field that should continually be reinventing itself and, and, and moving forward and not afraid to let go of the old and embrace the new, it should be the features field, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's really important for us to even see those kinds of things that we hold on that are dominant narratives about the tools even that we use. And, you know, this, that's not a knock on, you know, all the amazing things that have gone before. And I certainly, uh, as somebody who has a master's degree in the field and, and believes deeply in the field, sees the field as, a, as one of the ultimate expressions of funneling everything from psychology to mathematics to complexity to, you know, quantum physics and on and on. But still, you know, letting go of those dominant used narratives about the past. And so there are so many things, as a matter of fact, of course, comes to mind right away, you know, our healthcare system. And I'm a big fan also of saying, as I'm sure that you are, it's like, how are we going to define some of these things in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years and then pull that back to today and speed up that process? You know, the way we govern, um, the way we, our healthcare systems are. The way that we consider work, that's a big deal. We have so many people today talking about the future of work, the future of work, the future of work. Should we be working? Is it really the ultimate goal for humans to just spend their life at work or, or, to, or to say, hi, what do you do for a living? You know, that's what defines me. Is that really even what we were made for? And so those are some of the systems that I think are used futures, you know, and, and, we, and we still have the future of work, the future of commu- uh, the future of capitalism. Are those even the right questions? And I think this field helps us to really question those dominant narratives and then allow, again, going back to complexity, 
um, allow complexity to really bring about a brand new way of seeing things, a way we've never seen things before. As a matter of fact, I was telling you earlier that years ago, it's probably been about 12 years ago, published a couple of papers on, and we share this from time to time internally, but this past year we've been doing it more on what we call holoptic foresight or holoptic foresight dynamics. And that word holoptic is one of those big, fat academic words that simply means like a fly's eye or a dragonfly's eye. So we all know what panopticism is, and we look at Facebook and social media, and we can think of Zuckerberg as sort of the Foucaultian you know, jailer who looks at the rest of us and sees us <laughs> panoptically. <laughs> but if we're going to really go past you know, a monoptic or panoptic you know, one-way view of life and get into this collaborative, cooperative emergence, we really need to see things holoptically, much like a fly's eye across the entire uh, scope of their head. You know, they see the world very differently than we do. We have two eyes in the front of our head. A dragonfly, and you can look up some of these great videos on YouTube of how dragonflies see, and they've done these tests and such, and they see very differently than we do. They see up, down, left, right, east, west, north, south, all at the same time. And it's not just that they see a lot of things at the same time. They see all of that as one thing at the same time, one whole. Is there a way for us through foresight, through democratizing the future and democratizing foresight to become a holoptic species rather than just a monoptic or a panoptic species? And I think the answer is a resounding yes. And again, even in the midst of this sadness that we've been in and, and, and the loss and such, I think that loss allows us to open space for exactly these kinds of things. This is where we need to question where humanity is going. Hmm. For me, Frank, any process that allows interiors and emotions to enter into discussions of exteriors and behaviours hmm. is is at the core of, again, I come, you know, because Richard Slaughter, of course, emphasised the teaching of Ken Wilber's work on the notion of integrality, but the notion of the inside, the outside, the individual, the collective, and all the points in there. And when Sahail does CLA and takes us down to the myth metaphor level and people pause and understand those deep, deep things that operate, when, when Otto Sharma does the theory you, where we go through open mind, then open heart, then open will, and all those processes that bring more of who we are and also bring bring to mind things that if they're not silenced, they're not actually necessarily activated. And it's about trying to activate as much as possible. That's right. And you mentioned so many people, Sharma and, of course, my good friend, uh, Sohail and Yatala. And, uh, and, um, and then I'm just thinking, you know, of, some of the people that, you know, I also admire as well, like Fritjof Capra, you know, a physicist mm -hmm. who recently wrote The Systems View of Life and talks about um, the same thing that Bill Gates said, you know, the 21st century would be the century of complexity. If the uh, 20th century was a century of industrialization, the 21st century would be about complexity. And it's really this inner science. Fitrov Capra says um, there's a, emerging a science of qualities and not of quantitativeness, you know, um, moving from the nascent to the novel, from simplicity to complexity, from the quant to qual to, to maturity. Uh, Daniel Christian Wall, another person that I really respect a lot, who talks about regenerative processes and, of course, you know, respects the field of foresight himself and you know, talks about how we need to really see the world, not just generatively, but regeneratively, not just invention, but reinvention. And so all of that is so, so important. And I know a lot of what we talked about for the first last few minutes, obviously, you can tell I get jazzed about these things. And 
we certainly didn't mention, you know, specifically and tactically, where is healthcare going or where is government going or talk about, you know, some real, you know, practical and tactical answers. But I say that to say that's the job of all of these people before that we talked about that we're democratizing the future too. I'm not trying to get into their hands to just think academically all day long. I want them to come up with practical answers. But the first step to doing that is to be able to think this way. And that's why I appreciate the work that you've done for so long, because there's a great understanding that you've taught your students and people all over the world that foresight really starts on the inside. I've been telling, you know, I speak at a lot of design conferences because I think foresight and design are kissing cousins and I've loved it for a long time. I did some brief teaching at Savannah College of Art and Design and and different design schools and places. And I love the, the, the intersection of foresight and design. I've been teaching in some of those conferences recently that foresight's not bound by time and space because those are externality. But foresight is an experience. And as Rilke said, the future enters into us first before it manifests through us, right? So really being able to have uh, let people empower people to have that experience of the future internally, not bound by time and space, and then all these amazing ideas of what wants to emerge in their fields of study, in their fields of passion, of helping humanity, of getting out there and creating new social ideas, that will emerge if we are able to get people to think this way. Question four, the one where I ask, can you remember when you first started to explain to people what it was you did and they didn't actually understand what it was you were talking about? So this thing of how do you explain to people what you do when the people don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Today, I still wrestle with that to some degree. I think every good futurist does. And I can tell you one of the things that excites me more than anything else and it's very different now. And I know that we don't want to completely end this without um, acknowledging it a little bit more uh, substantively uh, the times that we're in. Even now, and before the pandemic started, we were seeing a great uptick in amount of people saying that foresight is important, the future is important. Maybe they didn't understand the whole field the way you and I do, but they, they cared about the future. They're caring about it more. I remember 20 years ago, the only articles written about foresight in popular media were how ridiculous it is and who are these futures. Mm. Now you're seeing a lot more articles on the positive side and, and how this is you know, an, an integral and important and critical uh, way of thinking and aspect. So I can remember when I first, uh, and I said earlier in the interview, when I first um, was introduced to the field of foresight myself, Certainly, I gravitated to it. It resonated with me because I really felt like this is future. This is what I, I've been teaching other people, but in sort of you know, more abstract ways. I didn't know there was a discipline around it. I didn't know it was a whole field. I can't wait to learn. Um, but even then, the field, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I had no idea you know, all of the amazing research for decades that had been done and how much I had to learn. And so... Um, that was super exciting. So I understand where people are coming from because we live in a world that for a long time has cherished short-termism and linear thinking and very, very quantitative ways of answering and solving problems when we know that's not the only piece of the puzzle. And so it can be very difficult to explain to people all of what we've been talking about 
um, on complexity and emergence and, and how do we really, you know, experience in the future internally. So, of course, you know, you have to find ways to really boil this down and meet people where they are. And that's an important part of the futures field for me, too, is meeting people where they are. Because, Peter, I really think that everybody has this ability to think like a futures, but we're going to see it differently. So I want to be able to listen first before I start just talking, because I'm listening for those key things that people are saying they're, they're already telling me something about futures thinking or something about foresight, because it's inherent in all of this. It wants to come out. We were, I believe, made as a species, not just to think about the past, not just to fight and flight, but also to future and to foresight as a species. It's, it's supposed to be our destiny. And so I like to listen to them first so that I can utter it back to them or, 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 or tell it back to them in a way that they'll understand, meet them where they are. And so in even a more tactical and, and, and practical kind of way, of course, you know, having Kedge and TFS and, and being able to say we help companies or organizations think about the future, build on their strategy and their innovation, their organizational development, people can sort of latch on to that. But again, I want to get them past all of that to really thinking about exactly what we do at the future school and those people leaving that leave in tears because they've been released and there's something that, you know, deep and profound that has happened to them. And so that's the way that I want to be able to explain futures to people, that it's really a mindset shift. It's a way towards agency. It's a way for you as a human being to be able to be released into all that you're supposed to do and not think that what you see in front of you is the only thing that you'll ever do or ever be. All of this uh, goodness that's inside of you that wants to come out, really, this is what the field is all about ultimately. And so I try to frame it for every person a little bit differently and really look for that thing that I think is the, sort of the key, the future key that will release and to understand the field. Thanks, Ryan. We're at the last question. What do you want to, to raise with me and the listeners? Well, certainly I do think it's very important, even though um, recently you have been circling around with some amazing guests and doing um, podcasts on just this time that we're in. Here we are in April now, ever since December, for those who had the keen eye, we've already been watching this pandemic unfold. And now we're months into it. And I think it would uh, still be amiss if we didn't mention that that's where we are at this time. And and that's what's going on at the moment. And so I really, there's several different, you know, ideas that are, have been really floating around my head while we're going through this. Of course, our business and Kedge and the Future School have had to radically shift gears in many ways. Um, we already had some online programs before the pandemic started. So I was thankful for that, that we, a lot of that was already sort of fleshed out for us. Of course, even with that being the case, we've had to uh, reframe and, and think of it in a new way. As a matter of fact, the future school, there's already supposed to be a face-to-face -face future school scheduled for um, Austin, Texas in October. And I do not believe that's going to happen face-to-face. -face. So we've already made you know plans to have that one moved online as well and to see the future school as also a, a program that we can do um, regionally in different time zones around the world. And so we're getting ready to announce a lot of that soon. We're excited about that. But 
I think it's also very important during this time to think about how do we just move as as futurists, as futures thinkers, as foresight professionals, beyond just, again, as you said earlier, just reiterating dominant futures are only looking for resilient strategies. And how do we really think more transformationally in an opportunity, in a time for us to do that? As I said earlier, I don't think a pandemic does or does not create better futures. We are going to still have the hard work of doing that. But how do we allow this to be an accelerant? How do we allow this time to move us towards those transformational futures that are going to be so important for us going forward and not just continue to try to build resilience in the midst of all of this? It's so tempting to do that. And governments and corporations and the powers that be are certainly going to try. They're already doing it. You see these stimulus packages going out. That's a sure sign of all of that. And certainly we've got to help people that are hurting. But this is an opportunity for us to move the needle in a drastic and radical way. And I want us to move past just adaptation and resilience to true transformational change. Let me ask you what something that, that I think has been circling in this interview has been your understanding of the leadership challenge or the leadership uh, responsibility for foresight. And I'm going to ask you to talk a bit about that because I know you've got strong views on what leadership is anyway. But now, given COVID and the need for transformation, what do you think leadership is really about? Yeah. Oh, and we live in a very interesting time when leadership should be on the you know forefront of everybody's mind now. And we've seen some great and inspiring leadership during this time come from some places we didn't expect it to come from. And then, of course, we've seen, at least in my opinion, a lot of what we think to be, you know, leadership sort of, um, you know, being exposed, not just to people, but just but but the whole approach to leadership. I'm really not speaking about the people in particular anyway. I'm talking about the approach of what leadership is or what we think it is in terms of governance or leadership, even within industry and such. I can't help but think about over the last few days, hearing uh, some of my associates and, and even people on our team talk about this being a time, and it even was before the pandemic, where we've been seeing young people rise up to meet the challenge of a new age of politics and, and governance and, and have a, a new voice and new perspectives. And we're seeing them respond, I think, not just in the United States where I am, but around the world in ways that we haven't seen in a long time. And I think it's really time for, for us to have a, a, a leadership that's not necessarily just age-based. I'm not saying that it needs to be somebody that we consider to be young or somebody that's old, but for us to really see leadership as a collective uh, endeavor. And it requires me to be able to listen to people outside of my age cohort outside of my way of thinking, we know that diversity breeds creativity. And creativity is a huge trait of complexity. So the only way that I'm going to be able to have good leadership going forward is to have a diversity of thought and a diversity of perspective. So for me, leadership going forward is going to have to be cooperative. It's going to have to be collective. And we're going to have to have a new way to define what it means to build governance models, organizational models, 
they have to really be built around this cooperative and collective evolutionary process forward. That's the only way that we're going to get that kind of diversity that breeds the creativity that's going to breed in a turn that transformational change that we need so desperately. Hmm. Now, when you say cooperative leadership, you don't mean committee leadership, do you? No, not committee leadership, of course. Um, I think it's across the spectrum. You know, we think about committees and we think, oh, you know, I'm going to form, you know, some kind of uh, holoptic committee, you know, within my organization, only within my sphere. We really need to see a new model. Hmm. And then when I'm getting super practical and tactical here, I'm thinking about, you know, in governance and about um, the way that we would approach uh, how a prime minister's role would be filled, or what does it mean to be um, the leaders within an organization? What does organizational culture and, and models even mean, period? And so I think it's beyond committee because we can form a committee and still be very myopic. Yeah. We can form committees and still only see the world very linearly or non-diverse. This kind of leadership is across spectrums, across uh, parts of society. And um, I think it's a decentralized type of leadership. Yeah. And so we're going to have to look in a much more decentralized kind of way to really go forward. We will not be able to create that transformational change that you and I are talking about unless we see a decentralized world, because another huge part of complexity is decentralization. And so we could fill up a whole other podcast with talking about that. But that's the way that we're going to really see that emergence, that creative ch change come out. Nature is trying to teach us if we yeah. really want to be biomimetic. <laughs> Yeah. Our leadership is going to have to be biomimetic as well. And nature does not rule by committee or by one individual person or one strict way of governing. It rules through a diversity of processes, of models, and they come together for this beautiful uh, tapestry that we call life. Mm. Yes, the, uh, the chaos of autonomous agents that mm. work in communion which it can look beautiful, and I, I, I love the phrase tapestry, but it can also look completely chaotic and messy, which yeah. is the other side of it. Yes, you That's can right. see So you can't say, well, I, do, you know, I want the neat and tidy version of chaos. Well, the answer is, well, there probably is yeah. no such thing as the neat and tidy version. Nope. Um, nope. But certainly I would have thought that, yeah, the big thing for leadership and what the pandemic is showing us is there has been, and we know this, there has been more intelligence at the periphery of the systems, then there can be at the top. And that's not to criticise anyone sitting in the top of a hierarchy. That's right. But in, intelligence is at the periphery of organisation. But, but if you haven't given autonomy and responsibility for outcomes and also responsibility for, you know, the things that go wrong, then you really haven't got something approaching collaboration. You've just got, you've just got committee. Absolutely. And going back earlier to, you know, those three sort of buckets of complexity, complex adaptive systems, complex responsive processes, people coming together um, and what comes out of that, you know, thinking about Sharma and Theory U and then mm -hmm. the complex potential states. Yeah. That's that periphery piece. Right. And so unless we understand, you know, that that's how complexity works. We're going to still continue to struggle with what wants to be the vision for humanity. That's the vision for the cosmos, um, which is really that those complex systems. And again, uh, circling all the way back around again, that's what our field's really all about, is getting people to be able to dance with that. If anything's coming out of this pandemic or if something does come out of this pandemic, it needs to be that we need to be able to, to and everybody said this, but I'm going to say it again, we need to be able to embrace complexity. We need to be able to dance with it.
As a matter of fact, I want to tell you something funny, Peter. When we talked earlier that you and I and Rowena Morrow saw one another and sat at the same table at the 2007, I believe, World Future Society Conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We were all sitting at the same table together. What a, what a wonderful thing uh, for me early in my career to sit with you guys at that table and to do some thinking. And way back then, I remember saying, and there was another gentleman sitting at our table too, um, that was just a power, is a powerhouse in the field. But I remember as this young uh, futurist, I said, I think we need to dance with complexity. <laughs> and this gentleman said to me, I don't know this dance with complexity. Maybe we need to tolerate complexity. Um, and so certainly I, you know, I took my lumps and, and, and left. But I do think today more than ever, that dance with complexity is so right on. We need to learn to dance with complexity. We need that liberation, that joy of learning that complexity is our friend, it's not our enemy. How do we embrace that? How do we embrace uncertainty? And that is the human experience. Look, Frank, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been an overdue pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, our chance to have a chat. Thank you for taking some time out to spend some time with the FuturePod community. It's been my pleasure, and I'm so glad to see the podcast flourishing and the community flourishing, and I wish you the best of luck going forward. Um, I'm so excited that we got this chance to speak. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.